Hey everybody, you're listening to the Legacy Church Podcast. Legacy Church is a multi-generational church that exists to worship God, become like Jesus, and bring hope to our community. Today, we're sharing a message from our current series. We believe that the Word of God is powerful and has real-life application to our lives today. We hope that this message encourages you. Get connected and learn more about us by visiting our website at lgcy.church. Some of you may know me, some of you may not. My name is Sherry. Um, My husband and I get to have the privilege of being part of the leadership team here in Hamilton Legacy Church. And I get the honor of bringing the word to you today. So uh, you guys can take a seat, maybe give somebody a hug on your way or a handshake. Let's pray (laughs) and uh, we'll get into this. Father, we love you. There is absolutely no one like you. And we just choose right now as your family to put down our own thoughts and agendas going into hearing your word. We give you our attention. There's nowhere else we'd rather be, God. And I know that when we come in with that heart posture, you just swoop in, God, with your full presence. And for anyone still struggling to do that, God, I pray that you would bless their spirit inside of them. Help them to wake up to hear your words this morning. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So over the last little while, you've heard a few sermons about moments leading up to the cross. And so my topic that I chose was Jesus in front of Pilate. I am going to read a, like a lengthy portion of scripture, but it's very interesting because it's like actually a narrative, it's a story. So you can follow along on the, te- on the screens or you can look it up in your Bible. It's in John 18, starting in verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate asked? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus said, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. 
Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. And from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judge's seat at a place called, known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away and crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Well, that's a good courtroom drama if I've ever heard one. <clears throat> Court is absolutely fascinating to me. I ironically got chosen for jury duty while preparing for this message and I got chosen and sworn in in all of about three hours and found myself in a week-long trial. Uh, which was wild. Uh, it was really nothing like the movies, but there is a very big sense of awe that comes on you because someone's future lies in your hands. And so I also didn't know this, but the judge instructed all the jurors very sternly throughout the entire trial to be aware of our own bias, our assumptions, our background history, traumas we've experienced, anything that would cause us to view the evidence in a certain light other than the facts presented. And we were told to deliberate and make our decisions based specifically on the evidence and our own common sense. So after going through that process and preparing for this, it's ridiculous to see what this trial was. <laughs> um, Pilate was biased on many fronts. He was superstitious, historically known to be superstitious. He served multiple gods. And so when they talked about Jesus being the son of God, he was worried which God he might make angry 
by killing it. And he was a coward because even though he found no, no charge against him, he still went through with it. And then there's the Jews who came with the verdict already and the sentencing already delivered, which is why they did not want to try him themselves because they weren't allowed to execute anyone and they knew that that's what the end game was. But then you look at Jesus and he wasn't a victim like you would normally see in a court. He was powerful in the middle of this human drama unfolding. It's actually, if you really look at it and really read it, it's astonishing to see how in control he was in this moment. He was powerful before Pilate. And the reason that he was powerful was because he chose to be there. That's the big difference. He chose to be there. So we read in John 18, 32, that Jesus was brought before Pilate to fulfill what Jesus had already said about the way that he was going to die. So earlier on in the book of John, this is what happens in, the, in John chapter 12. Some Gentiles or non-Jews came looking for Jesus because they wanted to talk to him. They wanted to be healed. They were ready to make him king too. They knew his fame already. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and some said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Now listen to this. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So chapters earlier in the history, Jesus already knows he's going to be crucified on a cross. It was already decided. He already knew it. But he said such an interesting thing here. He said that it was time for judgment on the world. Not that he was going to be judged, but that the world was going to be judged by him being lifted up on a cross. That is completely backwards to what we think about Jesus. Pilate washed his hands of the blood of Jesus, and the Jewish leaders tried to lay sentence on him, but it was him who chose to die. And the world he was talking about in this death being judged was actually what the Greeks call the cosmos. So it's not the earth, like the planet itself, or even just all the people in it. It's the state of rebellion against God, the way of the world. And so that was going to be judged with Jesus being lifted up. And it says at that moment, that's when the prince of the world, which is the devil, Satan himself, will, his power will be removed. And there would be a new world leader. 
at that time. And at that time, a new choice will be offered to humanity, redemption. So the facts are that the world already stood condemned because we made choices long ago. And we all still participate in them. The choice to go our own way. The choice to disobey God. So what Jesus is offering is actually the door out. Which is an amazing concept. Is that redemption is available to anyone at any time. It's really cool. <laughs> um, so Jesus did this to leave no room for doubt that he wanted a relationship with us. No matter what he had to suffer. So by doing that, he was actually showing the picture of overcoming love. A love that would do anything to restore a connection. Peter says it like this. You know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it wasn't paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him, God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he's been revealed for your sake. So there was another choice that happened, and that was God the Father, before the world began, actually chose to provide a ransom, a payment, to get us back. And Jesus chose to participate in that plan. And choice is such an important thing to like, realize in this whole scenario, because choice is the very foundation of love, it's the founding principle in creation. God provided choice from the very beginning for all people. Even in the garden, there was the tree of knowing good and evil. And then there were all the other trees that brought life and goodness. But there was a choice to choose your own way. And then when Moses and Joshua talked to the, the people of Israel, they said, I lay out for you two choices. Make your choice today. Is it going to be life going God's way or is it going to be death going your own way? You have a choice and you get to make that choice. So Jesus, in being powerful before Pilate, was choosing obedience to God. He wasn't a victim to the political climate. He wasn't a victim to the heated passion of the Jewish traditions. And he wasn't a victim to the judge's cowardice or even his own superstitions. He chose to obey his father and he remained powerful and self-controlled in what could have been the greatest human tragedy of all time. So as I said before, we all as humans already stood condemned, hopeless. There was nothing we could do to get out of that position. And I think that if all of us are really honest with ourselves, somewhere deep in our core, we feel that sense of doom that I can't fix this, no matter how hard I try, no matter what I do. And we spend a whole lot of our lives wasted trying to defend ourselves, cope, survive, and just make it through this life doing the best we can to avoid pain and heartache. And my question for us today is, that is, is that what Jesus saved us for, is a life like that? Uh, John doesn't agree because he says that as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. 
So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. That we can face God with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Because we love each other because he loved us first. I just want to go into that just quickly for a second. The idea that we can know Jesus and we can have even received salvation, but that there are parts of us that have not fully experienced the love of God. I don't know about you, but I have places in myself when I'm interacting with, usually it's people close to me, that like I become a different person all of a sudden. They say one thing and boop, who's this Sherry that just popped up? That's a piece of me that has not fully experienced the love of God yet. The moment I start to go into that defense mode, that survival mode, that I'm afraid and I need to cover my butt and all of those things, it's because I haven't fully experienced the love of God yet. Because this power that Jesus gave us was meant to permeate our lives. The Bible says that his life comes into us like a seed and Christ grows and is fully formed in us. And I look at it like, you know, it's seeping through all the places of our souls. Redemption, just going from place to place to place until we're whole again. And that makes it a little easier when you have those things that pop up. Because it's not the whole you, it's a piece of you that needs to fully experience the love of God. So we have a choice to run to the cross and be redeemed, or to run from it. And I think of it as this power, an image of a powerful magnet. Because Jesus said he was going to draw us to himself. That means there's a pull. So we see this image of the cross, and we're pulled towards it, pulled towards love, pulled towards redemption. And it actually takes effort to pull away and work against this new force in this world. That is the love of Jesus. So when we're doing that and we're feeling that pull, that struggle, it's a good sign that we have moved into what I like to call relationship court. <laughs> because we're working this salvation out, this redemption out that Jesus has given us in our relationships. And so when we go into the defend mode and we go into the blame mode and we go into all these modes, we are subjecting the people we love most to a trial. What part are they going to play? And we usually do it one conversation at a time. <laughs> it's just perpetual judge, jury, sentencing. You're bad and I'm good. Right? And so today I just wanted to present to you an idea that I learned in my life coaching. So uh, I find this stuff fascinating. So hopefully you can kind of like, you know, perk up a bit and hear it. So it's called the drama triangle, and they're going to put an image up on the screen for you. And drama is defined by fear, the need to be right, and blame. And so that quote came from a group called Conscious Leadership. They have an incredible video on YouTube that if you want to look into this more, it's called um, the drama triangle. And the idea is that the dra this drama triangle, which was created by Stephen Cartman in the 60s, 
It describes dysfunctional relationships where people in relationships, they shift between these three roles. The persecutor, I like to call him the bad guy, the rescuer, and the victim. So where one player in the drama exists, the other two are somewhere to be found. Now they might be found in a person, they might be found in your mind, and it might be you yourself, but there's always the three circling. So I'm gonna describe them quickly for you, starting with the victim. So the victim is defined by fear. Life is happening to the victim. They have no power to change unless somebody or something else changes for them. They're stuck. And an easy way to know that, if, that you're functioning in this victim is that you just feel like you have no choice. I can't change my world. I can't change myself. That person has to change before I can change. They have to do this before I can move forward. And you just live perpetually stuck in a rut and can't do anything. The second person is the villain, or the persecutor, sorry. Um, the persecutor is defined by blame. They blame themselves, they blame other people, they blame the group at large. It's not my fault, it's all of your fault. And you suck, and you should have done it differently, and you should, you should, you should. My coaching mentor used to say to me, stop shooting on me. And I found that so helpful because the moment you hear a should, that's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. Who says I should have done that? And I pray that that should would be lit up for you guys in your everyday lives like it has been for me so I can recognize when I'm being the bad guy. And then lastly is the hero. So the hero is defined by needing to be right. They bring tempor temporary relief. They do for others what those people can and should be doing for themselves. And they bring this temporary relief that helps people not to face their core issues. So I, in watching that video that I mentioned to you guys, I was really hit by something they said about the hero, that the hero can swoop in on themselves when they're being the victim my life sucks. I just need to eat another pint of ice cream. I just need to scroll. I just need to watch Netflix for the next seven hours. I, need, I just need to do this so I can feel better right now. And so you can actually hero yourself into a lifetime of coasting and never dealing with yourself. Or maybe you're someone that likes to feel, get, get, enjoyment out of helping other people out of tough situations that will not really help them in the long run. And so you keep this triangle going by swooping in and taking consequences for people that they need to experience so that they can learn. Now I'm not talking about mercy in a moment. I'm talking about patterned, interrupting God's process of sowing and reaping so that you can feel good about yourself and I can feel good about myself. Now those are heavy, if, but it really boils down to, oh, it's a way of thinking. It's what they call the victim mentality. 
And when we live this way, we, uh, we surrender our ability to choose and to grow, which Jesus died to give us back. Now, a few weeks ago, Bon spoke, and he talked about Jesus who came preaching the kingdom of God. Not just salvation, but the kingdom. Something about power and authority that life is supposed to change when we meet Jesus. And that's what I'm talking about here, is we were living condemned and as, as victims to our own drives, our own instincts, our own need to protect ourselves, and they're all unhealthy. And it becomes a problem because fear is the enemy of love. And if God is love and we are his children, then that's going to be a big problem in how we're relating to other people to love them and show them who God is. Timothy in 2 Timothy, or sorry, Paul actually says this in 2 Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Listen what he has given us, power, love, and self-control. So when we live in this victim mentality, we close ourselves off from relationships. That's what happens. Because nobody wants to suffer. Like it hurts. And relationships are inevitably painful, whether it's real or perceived. Because if we have undealt with stuff from our past, we filter every single meaningful relationship with those filters. That pain, I don't want to feel that again. And so you close off and you shut your love off and your ability to show God and to experience the love of God. I'll, uh, I'll give you a little example. I, I warned you I would wrap me and my husband out. So here it is. <laughs> my husband and I, we haven't always had the best track record with vehicles. So this started right back when we got married. Actually, it started in our dating years, right? I think so. Yeah. We've been married 20 years this September. We'll be married, which is pretty awesome. Um, and uh, so we had a few crashes in our early married years. Like he crashed a couple. I crashed one. Our um, insurance was more than our mortgage payment at one point, which is pretty amazing. We were this close to not being insured, I think. And then I got, I had a car and uh, I lent it to a friend, and in all of one hour, that car got crashed too. So this is all in like a very short period of time. It was horrible. And so I went from having a car to not having a car to having a car to not having a car. But on our 15-year wedding anniversary, we strolled into Kia, and I was like, honey, I want a car. And he was like, that would be amazing. And he got a car, and we had two vehicles, and it was amazing because I had uh, two children, and it was just so nice to be able to just go however and whenever I wanted, no matter what shift he was on. And we did really well for a couple years, like really well. It was amazing. But unfortunately, this past summer, my husband coming home from work was not in a great headspace, and he like totaled our van, which was the second vehicle. And I like, I don't know what I was really thinking, but I just was like, shrugged it off. Oh, it's okay. You can take the car for work and it'll be fine. I don't really need a car. And, but then as I was busing with three children and doing all of these things and I'm like muttering under my breath, why do I always have to do this? Blah, 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 blah. Just like rotten in my attitude. And this phrase came out of my mouth one night in a snowstorm when, you know, 
I was picking up my husband from work with the kids and it was horrible. And I was like, why do I always have to pay for everybody's mistakes? I was like, ooh, that was a beautiful thought. Praise the Lord, right? Uh, but I've been working over the last few years on noticing how I think. And so I went to God with this thought and he showed me that this thought had been going on for a very, very long time. Like back to the early years of my life. And the Holy Spirit can do that. He can show you the root of these toxic ways of thinking and feeling and living. And I was faced with this choice that I'm talking about. Like, I am no longer a victim. I am no longer a victim in Christ. And that is a powerful statement. Because if Jesus was powerful before Pilate, then I get to be powerful in the face of any drama that I'm experiencing. And so all of a sudden, I have this choice now that I didn't think I had before. And it might not seem like the good wife thing to do or the nice thing to do, but I went to my husband and I was like, hey, honey, I need the car. I'm really sorry. And he was like, oh, of course, no problem. I'm like, oh my God. I've been living like this for like how many months? So angry and bitter and no car. All I had to do was make a choice and speak up and live a different life. But I had been thinking that I was saving my husband from having crashed his car and I was being the good wife and I was doing all the things that I should do to be the rescuer and the hero and he's going to love me so much. But I was villainizing him at the same time. Do you see the three roles there? I was the victim, and I was the villain. And I was the rescuer. Nate had no idea the drama was going on. <laughs> right? Poor guy. Oh. But, but we do this, guys, all the time. And once you see it, you cannot unsee it. And the Holy Spirit is so faithful to start to show you all the places that you have surrendered choices or you've been taking other people's consequences when he's really trying to help them grow or you've been pointing the finger at people that you don't even know the whole story about where and why and how and what's going on. I love this quick little story from the book of Joshua and I am coming to the close here, guys. So Joshua was near the town of Jericho. He looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in his hand. So they're about to, I'm just going to break there for a second. They're about to go and conquer this massive fortified city after being wandering the desert for 40 years. So he sees this guy standing in front of him with a sword and he goes up to him and he demands, are you a friend or a foe? Neither one, he replied. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And at this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? Have you ever found yourself saying that God is on your side? I know that I have. And that's a very different thing than being on God's side being on the side of redemption, being on the side of being powerful and self-controlled. 
when God is on my side, he's subject to my opinions and my perspective. And the truth is, is that there are no more good guys or bad guys since Jesus died and was raised from the dead. There are only those who run to the cross or those who run from it. And I wanted to go into this for a minute because we have all suffered truly as victims at some point in our life, lives. And I don't want to negate that because we have suffered. Each one of you I know in your own ways. And forgiveness and the things that Jesus taught are what make us powerful again. And Jesus said to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, and to pray for your enemies. And Pastor Rachel and I were talking a little bit about this, and I said that God had shown me this revelation years ago that blessing your enemy was the nail in the coffin of unforgiveness. And we got talking about that blessing because it's really disgusting to think that to bless someone would mean that they would have all the success in the world and that they'd have all the beautiful, wonderful things they ever dreamed of. That is not biblical blessing. Biblical blessing is that they turn to God and they come into their true identity, that they turn back to God, that an enemy actually becomes a brother or a sister. That is blessing. And she was saying that that's far easier to stomach to bless your enemies because the prayer is that God would allow whatever needs to happen in their lives so that they would run back to him and stop ignoring the pull and stop resisting the magnet. And so I wanted to speak to you guys today that revelation that he gave me was that you can put the nail in the coffin of unforgiveness because I know that sometimes it's really hard to bury the dead. The dead relationships, the dead experiences, the pain, the abuse, the trauma, the things that we've gone through. But there is that final nail. I bless you. You're dead. You're going in the ground. I pray that God would raise you to life again and you would be a new creation. And that is that powerful, not a victim, life that we get to live. This overcoming love that he actually died to give us. So I don't have to suffer my life anymore. I may suffer in life, but it doesn't have to happen to me anymore. I get to have choices in the middle of being um, abused even. And Jesus was the one that exemplified this better than anybody else on the planet. Because while he was being murdered, his words were to the people and to his father, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The man was literally being murdered. I've heard tales of people um, that have been in the moments of abuse who have been graced by the Holy Spirit to be powerful and just literally show God's love in that moment. But if we live in a victim mentality, we can't be powerful in those moments because all we'll be is triggered. That's the bottom line. We need to be, be able to keep bringing those parts and pieces to God so that each one that gets that love of God, we get to overcome. I have a new level of authority. And then the next one, I'm going to overcome that. I'm going to get over this. I'm not going to get stuck here. I'm going to get over it. And Romans is really clear about that. The subheadings of Romans 8.31 is more than conquerors. That's powerful to be more than a conqueror. 
says, what shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, if he loves us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also along with him graciously give us everything? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate us. What if pain and fear no longer had the power to control you? This is the life that Jesus offered us. What if for every time you stood accused, imagine yourself in a court, guilty, actually guilty, standing there, the jury's reading the verdict, and the judge says, not guilty, paid for, paid for, it's done, sentence already carried out. So I want to ask you all today, you can bow your heads if you want to. Where are you playing the victim in your life? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Where are you waiting on someone else to rescue you? Where might you be stuck? Who is that bad guy that you just can't forgive? And maybe it's you that you can't forgive. Father, we, your people, we stand. Each one of us knows that we stand in court in our own hearts. Our own hearts condemn us and they condemn other people. So, Jesus, we invite you into the place that you're highlighting right now in our lives. Victim, rescuer, bad guy, they're all the same. And not one of those can separate us from your love. The door out is the cross. God, I pray that the pull right now on all of our hearts would be so strong that we'd be aware of the pull. And maybe you're in this room and you have never heard about Jesus this way, that he actually came to do something powerful in your life to make you like God. And you want that. And that is something that you want to take a step towards. 
I want to give you a chance today because the chance is waiting for you every moment of every day, but you're aware of it now. So if that's you in this room and you would like to follow Jesus and not be a victim anymore, just raise your hand up. Thank you guys, that takes a lot of courage. And maybe you're in this room and you've just been stuck. Turn your eyes to Jesus right now. He promises promises us to always be there, that he has never left us. He has never abandoned us. He's been in in the moments where we've been the bad guys and where we've been victims. Jesus, would you show us where you've been in those moments? What were the lies that we've been believing from those moments in time? Who have we been waiting on to change so that we can be different? And I speak over this room, a release. The spirit of the Lord is here today to set the captives free. If God has shown you some lie that you have believed, you get the chance to bury it in the ground today so something new can grow. And for those of you that have decided that you want to follow Jesus, you can repeat after me, Jesus, thank you for dying. Thank you for choosing to die for me. Thank you, God, for raising Jesus from the dead. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are going to empower me to live like Jesus did. I offer you my whole self, piece by piece by piece. And God, I pray over this church family right now that you would keep showing them the pieces, that you would keep putting them back together as whole because you've got things for us to do. You've got love for us to show. And I pray that the light switch of love would be turned back on in this church family. Right now by choice, flick, flick the switch, guys. There's no point in living without love. I bless you, church. And God, we thank you because you did something today here that cannot be undone. We love you, God. Amen. Thanks for listening. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast and connect with us on our website at lgcy.church.